I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that you'll turn to Matthew 11. As you see on your worship guide this morning, communion is going to follow our sermon time today. We don't always do it that way, but it seemed a good idea today. So in just a little bit, we'll also be enjoying the Lord's table together. You'll find today's uh, text on page 816 if you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs provided for you. And if you'd like to take one of those for your own benefit or give it to someone else, please, please feel free to do that. Matthew 11, 28. I'm doing something that I'm not sure I've ever done before, which is preach a sermon again, sort of. <laughs> preach another sermon on the same passage that I preached from the last time I preached. You can read books of sermons by guys like Spurgeon and others and see that it's not an altogether uncommon practice in the history of the church, but I don't think I've ever done it. I tend to think that it's best to keep things moving in a sermon series so that as much of the whole counsel of God as possible can get worked through in the ultimately extraordinarily brief allotment of time that a, a preacher, pastor has to preach the word. But when I came away from the sermon week before last, I sensed that I hadn't quite finished preaching this text. I do think we dug through it together. I do think we learned from it. I benefited from it in my heart. Heard a couple of comments from some of you along the same lines. It was great to exposit the words and the context and its message and its meaning and apply it to our lives. But I think there's more here for us, particularly regarding how it affects us as a church and as individuals. It's always a good sign when you have a thought like that and you bring it up even in passing to a fellow elder. I mentioned it to Brian. I don't remember what day of the week it was. We were chatting and he said that he had thought essentially the same thing. So it seemed a good idea. Have you ever watched a, a movie or a TV show or uh, and seen in whatever it is that you're watching, either a letter or a, a bulletin or a poster that's on the screen and it's kind of central to what's being viewed. And that whole thing is important, but there's like a camera focus on a certain part of that letter or poster or bulletin. Either the camera is focused or its placement on the screen and the frame is strategic so that your eyes will be drawn to one particular central part I think that's what I'd like to try to do today, to focus on the very end of Matthew 11, park on verses 28 through 30, even though we've already looked at them. And this time, since we already dug pretty deeply in terms of exposition two weeks ago, meditate on some implications for us. Look again at these words that Ryan just read for us just a, a couple of minutes ago. It's a very brief passage, so let's read it again. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In our exposition of the verses 25 through 30 just a couple of Sundays ago, I suggested that it might be helpful for us to consider this passage as organized around four sort of metaphorical chambers of Jesus' heart, just as our human hearts have four chambers. And I have them up there for you 
all at once. Jesus' prayer, a heart of gratitude. Jesus' authority, a heart of glory. Jesus' invitation, a heart of grace. And then Jesus' promise, a heart of gentleness. But what I'd like to do is lean in further and settle on those last two chambers as revealed in this passage for several reasons, but here's two. First of all, the rest that Jesus offers in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 isn't merely eschatological. And if that word is new or strange to you, essentially what I'm saying is that it's not only something that comes to us later in the future. It's also an immediate rest. In other words, rest for you and for me and for all who come to him right away, just as it was for his original hearers. So that's the first reason. The rest isn't merely eschatological. It's for us today. The second reason I want to lean into these final two chambers is that our church, set in our culture and in our time, needs to see and believe and meditate on the gospel grace and gentleness of Christ. If we are going to be a church that reflects the heart of Jesus as he wants us to. I am totally convinced that what our church needs more than anything else, if she is to be what Jesus wants her to be, more than anything else, we need a rock-solid, unwavering, and holistic commitment to the gospel of Jesus and the Jesus of the gospel. Our church's mission statement claims that our aim is to be and make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. It says it in a little more words than that, but that's at the heart of it. But if we don't have, as a church, a rock-solid, unwavering, and holistic commitment to the gospel of Jesus and the Jesus of the gospel, we will not fulfill that calling on our lives together as a local church. So I believe that our church needs to understand what verses 28 through 30 is saying and what they mean and to even feel the way that they affect our thinking and our speaking and our living today. We need it more than we need to know how to address other very important and pressing matters of our age. We need it even more than an exhaustive and thorough understanding of the dangers of critical theory. We need it more than discernment about hot-button issues of evangelicalism today, whether it be social justice stuff or whether or not the Asbury revival is real or whether it be a women's role in church ministry. You know why? Because... All other important matters of Christian living will be rightly addressed by us in direct proportion to the centrality of Jesus and the gospel to us. I believe that. That all other important, and they are important, and you shouldn't not care about those examples that I just listed. You ought to dig into that stuff and know it well. But all important matters of Christian living will be rightly addressed by us in direct proportion to the centrality of Jesus and the gospel to us. And I just want to stay there for a second and say that you might have heard me say something that I didn't say, so I'm going to try to make sure you hear what I am saying. I am not saying that critical theory 
and social justice and women in church ministry and whatever else are unimportant. If you heard that, you misheard me. I'm not saying that. I am saying that what needs to be most central to us and at the core of who we are is an understanding of the gospel of Jesus and the Jesus of the gospel. And that when that really truly is rock solid and unwavering and holistic to us, those other very important and very, in many ways, troubling matters will ultimately be addressed in a biblical and God-honoring way. Now, I had some of these thoughts about this before our conference ever started last week. Just like I said, after I preached the sermon, I felt like there was just some, something missing so I felt that way, but then it was during a discussion with some brothers who gathered for coffee and Andy Nacelli, uh, our DOXA speaker, last weekend that it just sort of crystallized in my mind for me. We were talking about some very important applications along the lines of these examples that I just mentioned, some applications of the way we understand the conscience biblically. And as I was listening to the brothers toss around some ideas together that were very helpful and very important about the modern church and some of the issues that we face started to think about the fact that church history, both modern and ancient, has been littered with controversies and problems and issues that needed to be dealt with biblically, both corporately and individually, and they were dealt with in direct proportion to the soundness of their understanding of the truths and applications of the gospel and Jesus. And so I just sort of imagine this timeline popping up along the various timeline, then spikes sort of representing important issues that Christians have needed to deal with in their own time and place and in their own hearts based on what God is doing in them. And then I also sort of imagine this block underneath that timeline with no spiking that is just rock solid and foundational to the whole thing which regardless of those situational cultural spikes never moves and that block and foundation is jesus the bedrock truths of christ and his gospel which first corinthians 15 says is of first importance it doesn't mean only and it doesn't mean whatever second or third or fourth or fifth isn't important, but of first importance is Christ and his gospel. Therefore, I believe these things of Christ and the gospel need to be central in order to get all these other potential things right that we've seen in our lives and in the lives of other Christians who have gone before us. And so while there are other vitally important issues, including matters of the conscience that we discussed last week. And while we have to seek to get those things right in, in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord and always be pressing forward to grow in our understanding of things, we also have to remember that the solid, unchanging, central foundation to the whole thing is Jesus and keep our focus on him. And so that's my heart for this morning. I believe that if we are rock solid and unwavering and holistic in our dedication to the gospel of Jesus and the Jesus of the gospel, everything else will ultimately get on track. I really do believe that. Because, friends, if we fail to really grasp the gospel and Jesus, and I don't just mean mentally, intellectually, but grasping it in our hearts who Jesus really is, what the gospel really is, what Jesus has really done. If we don't really truly grasp those things, we will be in danger. 
We'll be in danger of wandering into false teaching about what is right and what is wrong. We'll be in danger of misapplying and mispracticing, I suppose to coin a word, what it means to be salt and light. We'll be in danger of failing to understand that our lives aren't about us and about our plans and about our desires, but about Jesus. We'll be in danger of drifting into unrepentant sin because we'll forget how glorious and satisfying Jesus is. So friends, when Jesus and his gospel is at the center, we are safe. And Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, reveal his gospel, love, his compassion, his grace, which are at the heart of our message and our faith. And so I say, therefore, we should scoot forward, as it were, lean in and listen closely. The text that we've already looked at, verses 28 through 30, reveals at least three ways that I believe Jesus' gentle grace affects us, both individually and as a whole local church. The first is that it motivates our mission. The gracious gentleness of Jesus and his gospel motivates our mission. The mission of Christ's people, which is us, by the way, is central to the context in which Jesus says these things. The rest of chapter 11 has to do with the expectations of Jesus' people regarding his messianic mission and how those expectations are not being met. And also chapter 11 talks about the reality that there would be many who would not and in fact did not receive him as the savior of their souls and the dangers of that. And in fact, if you go back another chapter to chapter 10, you're looking at Christ's words to his 12 apostles that he sends out on mission, telling them what it's going to be like, what to expect, how it's going to be hard, assuring them of his presence, promising them that their faithful obedience to him will result in eternal reward from him. And so when we come to the end of chapter 11 and we find Jesus starting in verse 25, thanking his father for his sovereignty over all who will come to saving faith and then later on claiming to have the authority to reveal or conceal salvation from sinners and then calls in verses 28 through 30 to find rest in him and to come to him. He's clearly still in this context of mission. I think the heart of Jesus' call in verses 28 and following to come to him for rest and to learn from him and to take his yoke and receive his rest reveals his heart for mission and should be the same heart that we have on mission. Now we have spent a lot of time lately as a church in this sermon series in Matthew's gospel talking about mission. And one of the things that spurred me to think that we weren't quite done with this passage was my wondering about to what extent our time in these passages has brought in some of us, or even all of us, a sense of guilt and heaviness and inadequacy. The Holy Spirit's conviction when the Word of God is read and taught and preached and meditated on is definitely present and needed and if we are in fact sinning by not obeying jesus not living on mission whether through ignoring his words or failing to put aside laziness or whatever else would get in the way of serving him then we should feel some guilt in that sense but friends 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, if you're a Christian, you don't stand before God condemned. And you are not teetering on a razor's edge over the flames of hell. And Jesus' heart of gentle grace, even in the context of mission here, should lead us away from condemnation, even as it does motivate us toward mission. I think this passage's display of Jesus' gentle grace addresses our guilt regarding mission in two ways. First of all, his heart that, reveals, that is revealed here frees us from guilt as we go on mission because it's Christ that we're presenting, not ourselves. That's the first way. You don't need to feel guilty when you're on mission about anything because you're not presenting yourself, you're presenting Him. This Christ who calls people to lay their burdens down at His feet is the message that we're proclaiming. We're not on a mission to develop the most clever arguments or the most powerful one-liner to convince someone to surrender to the king. And there is a place for apologetics. And if you are able, you will benefit greatly from a study in apologetics. In other words, how to explain some of these things and respond to questions and concerns that people will have. You will, you will find the opportunity and you will have reason to reason with people. And in fact, the Christian faith has compelling and startling mountains of evidence to support it. But what we're sharing is Jesus himself, not our intellect, not our ability to turn a pithy phrase, not our Bible knowledge, not even a robust theology or our soundness of doctrine. We're presenting Jesus, this gracious and gentle Jesus. And that should be freeing to us and remove feelings of guilt and shame that are inappropriate because all we're really doing on mission, hopefully, is pointing to Him. Saying, look at Him. That's the one that I'm following. That's the one that was prophesied long ago. Read this word. Hear His story. Consider His claims. And while Jesus is a judge and He is a mighty Messenger of God at his heart, as he proclaims it in this text, his heart is gentle and lowly. Second reason, second way that our guilt is addressed by the gentle grace of Jesus in this passage is that it reminds us that Christ's heart here is his heart for us. His heart should be freeing to us in the sense that it's Him that we're presenting, this gentle, gracious One. But it should also be freeing to us in the sense that we are reminded in this passage of His heart toward us, His heart for us. He doesn't want His children feeling the burden of their own efforts to live up to what following Him requires. He has compassion on those who are weary and heavily burdened. He has compassion on you when you struggle to follow Him the way that you ought. Weariness and heavy ladenness is what Jesus invites people to be saved from in this text. Why would He want you to go back to it? Verse 29, 
You see Jesus calling us to His yoke. Not the law's yoke, not the Pharisee's yoke. We talked about that already. Verse 28 calls us to come to Him with our burdens. Verses 28 and 30 calls us to His rest. And so the gentle grace of Christ in this passage motivates us as we're on mission. First, because we're sharing a Him more than a what, and the Him is not us, it's Jesus. And it also motivates us, secondly, because we're reminded in this passage that He is compassionate to those who are weary and heavily burdened from their efforts to measure up. So we know, therefore, that He is compassionate to us when we are weary from our failing efforts at mission. So friends, there is certainly a sense to which we should read Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 and feel a kind of burden from the call of Jesus to mission. We should feel compelled to serve our King. We should put our own lives aside for Him. We should be willing to suffer death for His mission and even harder than that to suffer life for His mission. But don't forget who this Christ is that we're sharing. That His grace has removed the pressure for you to measure up perfectly. You can't. And that the rest that He has invited us to affects our everyday lives, not just our future. So that's the first way that the gentle grace of Christ affects us. The second is that it moves us to treat one another with love. I just loved the fact, and if you're not able to be part of our E412 time, boy, you are missing out. It has been fabulous. And this morning, we were reminded of this very thing from a totally different passage. I love how the Lord does that providentially. The gentle grace of Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, is directed at undeserving people. Think about who Jesus is talking to here in Matthew 11. If it is fair to say that Jesus said what he said in verses 28 through 30 directly after his words that proceeded in Matthew's record, words about woes to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, if they did come directly after those words, which we can't be totally sure of, but it does seem a reasonable thought, then it is also a sensible assumption that these come to me Words are directed at these same people. Jesus felt really strongly about what these cities had coming. If you look back at the text, you see these woes to unrepentant cities. He says that it will be better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for those cities who rejected him. And if that's who Jesus is talking to here, those that he strongly rebuked just a few verses earlier, then what an astonishing act of grace from our Lord to invite them to enjoy his rest, to invite them to lay their burdens at his feet, to assure them of his gentle and lowly heart. Them, undeserving sinners. But you know, even if it turned out that he actually said these words before us in Matthew 28 through 30 much later than that particular exact event these of those condemning woes to the cities that rejected him guess who he's still talking to people who don't deserve his grace 
no matter who Jesus is talking to, they're people who don't deserve his grace. Because none of us is deserving of saving grace, are we? Every one of us, Scripture is clear, has turned to our own way and rejected God by nature. And that is bad news that precedes good news. Bad news that none of us is good, that none of us deserves favor from God. None of us, therefore, has any hope of a restored relationship with God unless He intervenes. And the good news is He did through this one speaking compassionate, loving, gracious words in our text. Why am I pointing out this stuff regarding who Jesus is talking to? Because here's what I'm getting at. Listen, if Christ is gentle and gracious towards undeserving sinners, whether they be Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum or not, and if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he therefore has every right to condemn them, but instead calls them in grace and gentleness? How should we, with no right to condemn anyone, treat one another? And to add another layer to this, if we are just as undeserving of the grace and love and compassion and gentleness of Jesus as those whom he spoke to directly in this text, then, oh my friends, what kind of hypocritical, self-righteous, prideful snobs would we be to ever withhold compassion and grace and love from someone else in the body of Christ? No matter how undeserving they might seem. And of course, this applies to how we treat unbelievers as well. But at the moment, I'm just thinking about the body of Christ. Friends, the gentle grace of Christ should affect the way we treat each other. Every church all over the world is filled with people who don't deserve Jesus' gentleness because of their sin, but who have received it because of His grace. Sadly, we often get the idea that when someone's messiness or their sin or their mistakes or their baggage starts making life hard for us, we get a pass and we don't have to be gentle. We don't have to be gracious, even though Jesus has been and continues to be towards us. And that, my friends, is tragic when it happens. The gentle grace of Jesus should drastically affect the way that we treat one another. And the way that we treat one another should mirror the way that Jesus has treated us with kindness, with patience, with compassion, with love, with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, with gentleness, just like we see in his call in verses 28 through 30 of Matthew 11. Friends, imagine what a healthy, vibrant, growing place of discipleship Redeemer Bible Church will be as we learn together that our church is a place where it is safe to admit our struggles, where it is okay when things get a little messy, when it is okay to not have everything perfectly in order all the time because it's normal for us to walk alongside one another as we're growing and learning and changing. Rather than a place where the moment someone slips up, they 
fall under harsh criticism. Or where we are quicker to judge in anger than forgive in grace. And so when a brother or sister, or a husband and wife, a fellow church member, one of the deacons, one of the elders, fails you in some way, because they will, because they're human, remember Jesus' heart towards you in your undeservingness. And pray for the Holy Spirit to help you mirror the grace of Jesus to the fellow, your fellow people of Jesus. The third way that I think the heart of Christ, the gentle grace of Christ affects us, I think most important for us today is that it matters to our relationship with Him. This, this is really where my heart was for going back to this passage in the first place. The gentle grace of Jesus revealed in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 affects our relationship with Him. And knowing it matters to our relationship with Him. Remember, as we've already said this, the context of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, it comes right at the end of some sobering words from Jesus on some pretty serious topics about the judgment that's in store for those who reject him. A call to trust him even when things aren't going the way that you think they should and things aren't making sense. The need for faithfulness in ministry, calling out people who get upset at the way his kingdom plan is going and calling them spoiled children context of this passage is filled with opportunities for us to read it and go, sheesh, I am really not very good at being a Christian. I must be quite a disappointment to my Lord. Would have thought that by now I'd have figured this, that, or the other thing out. I really hope no one sees who I really am. In fact, just the other day I was talking with a brother that was bemoaning some of his own weaknesses and struggles and saying some negative and pejorative things about himself, certainly in a spirit of humility. But I felt the need to remind him and said, brother, you're actually a beloved saint of God. And yes, you're living in a broken world. You're fighting against the flesh. You're dealing with troubles and trials. But the reality is you are beloved by the Lord. Friends, it is easy to get discouraged and our weaknesses and failures. And we all have them. But friends, that's the whole point of the gospel. That we need Jesus. And that He came to earth for us. That He fulfilled God's righteous requirement for us. And that He then died for us. And that now He is risen and He reigns so that now we can say neither life nor death nor anything can separate us from His love. So friends, we have got to know this in the depths of our souls that this gentle and gracious Christ is yours. And yes, we need to work at our Christian walk. And we need to work hard. We've got to be willing to repent and confess whenever it's needed. But we've got to be careful that we do not lose sight of the gentleness and grace of Jesus towards us. That's part of why I felt concerned after the sermon a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if any of you felt this way, but I wondered if perhaps that weary and heavy ladenness was actually weighing a little heavier after so much talk of 
problems that we have with looking at Jesus in these ways. We've got to be careful to understand the gentleness and grace of Christ towards us. And it's not because we need to pursue what the world calls self-care or self-love or self-forgiveness. I'm not talking about anything like that. But the message of the gospel is a message that calls undeserving, broken, sinful people to enjoy the grace and gentleness and rest of Jesus. And that's the heart of Jesus' words in Matthew 28-30. through 30. It's a gospel call to come. All of you, he says, who are burdened. All of you who are weighed down by shame and guilt and sin and condemnation because of your inability to fulfill the righteous requirement of God because of the messes that you get yourself into, because of sin, come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Follow me. Take me. Experience what life is like when you're united to me, even though you don't deserve it. We've established that already. But I still invite you to my eternal rest, to enjoy a relationship with your Creator that's characterized by rest. And I said this just a few minutes ago, but the rest that Jesus is calling us to in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 isn't merely eschatological. In other words, it's not merely something that's coming in the future, at the end of all things where we get rescued and everything feels better. The rest that Jesus gives those who come to him certainly includes the promise of eternal rest in his presence and in the new heavens and the new earth that the scripture promises is coming in the age to come. But guess what, my friends? You and I also have access to his rest now. A different sort. We're not going to live in the new heavens and the new earth this afternoon. Well, I suppose he could come back and we would be very, very, very much fine with that. But I think you know what I mean. His call in this text to his rest should tell us that he doesn't want us burdened or bogged down and moping around while we just wait for this big rescue to come someday. He calls us to come and be relieved now. I'm not talking about Joel Osteen's best life now, false gospel. I'm not talking about that. Rest doesn't always mean happiness. Rest from Jesus will not exclude seasons of suffering. It will not remove all trials. But it will include a relationship with him that transforms and redeems our unhappiness and our trials and our suffering into an experience of going through those trials and sufferings with the assurance of his rest with us. I think of it in terms of how we've seen it in this very church. And I'm going to embarrass somebody, but that's okay. We've seen it in this church. We've seen Christians go through immense trials in this body, whether it be loss of children, loss of parents, loss of spouses. We've seen people go through financial strain. We've seen parenting hardship. We've seen diseases of various kinds. And you have seen Christians like Lauren when his wife Cheryl passed away and when kidney disease threatened his life continue to experience and enjoy and even express to us 
the rest of Christ that he still lived in. None of us ever does it perfectly. Lauren didn't either. But it's real, isn't it? That's what Jesus wants for us right now. And so, in our daily Christian walk, we have got to be careful that we do not lose sight of the gentle grace of Jesus for us. And in fact, the compassion and gentleness and grace and love of Jesus on display in verses 28 through 30 of Matthew 11 should tell us something about our relationship with him and the way he thinks of us. Friends, listen, this is so important. If you are his, and again, I reference E412, Sinclair Ferguson, our virtual teacher, reminded us that the most common description of Christians in the New Testament is not the word Christian, but those who are in Christ. And so if you are his, if you are in Christ, listen to me, maybe you don't know this, Jesus does not look at you as a disappointment. He does not look at you with disgust. He can't. He loves you. His love doesn't waver. He doesn't see some idiot who can never get it right. He doesn't see you as a failure. He is gracious to you. He is gentle towards you. He wants you to find rest in Him because He loves you. Rest that comes from knowing that no matter what, you're His. Even when you sin, even when you struggle, even when you doubt, even when you fail. Rest that comes from not feeling burdened and weighed down with thoughts of needing to measure up perfectly or perform Christianity in the way that it has to be. Rest from not, oh, this is a big one, from not worrying what everybody else thinks. Because what he thinks is what matters most. Rest from hearing words like we'll see in not too long, just in the next chapter, Matthew 12, verse 20 where Isaiah's prophecy is referenced and it says that uh, of the Christ, it was said that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, he is so awesome that he can both be totally just and swift and efficient in his judgment of his enemies and not brutal with his people, gentle with his people. Friends, I am convinced that one of the best things any Christian can do for their heart, for their soul, and for their own growth in holiness is to meditate on the grace and love of Christ for them. On the gospel. We sometimes think mistakenly that what we need more than anything else is to be reminded of how bad and sinful we are. And the truth is we do need reminders sometimes. Pride gets in the way. We start thinking we're doing everything really well. We need to be reminded that we still sin. It is an essential aspect of the gospel message that we need a Savior. And after we're saved, we still have the flesh. The evil one still tempts us. The world that we live in is still filled with opportunities to sin. And we give in to temptation a lot. And we still need to repent and confess. Why else do we have passages like the men are going to see in our James study over these next several months where we need to confess our sins to one another? But, my friends, what's going to transform our hearts is not the beatdown and bludgeoning of the law. 
and being reminded over and over and over again about how often we failed this last week and how short we fall of his righteousness and how egregiously we've disobeyed. What's going to transform us is the grace of Christ, the gospel of Christ, his gentle love towards sinners like us, calling us to look to him and to find rest. And let me say this to those of us who are parents. That's the same thing that's going to transform our children's hearts. Bludgeoning them and beating them down with law, 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 law is not going to transform them. Only the gospel of Jesus can do that. And so what is next for us after leaning into this passage? I think one of the most obvious things to take away from this is to just start with a renewed amazement at the grace and gentleness of Jesus towards undeserving sinners. To gaze at it, to think about it, to meditate on it, to read about it in the Bible, and to be amazed. I also think it includes necessarily a commitment in our hearts to being individual people and a local church together for whom it is just a regular rhythm in our lives to praise and proclaim the grace of Christ, both in our own hearts, privately, to ourselves, and to each other. And here's an example. If, for example, in a fellowship group meeting in the next couple of weeks here, or in a one-on-one conversation, and someone is being transparent, as they should, in some way about a struggle they're dealing with, whether it be sin or temptation or conflicting feelings about things, it would honor our gracious and gentle Christ to be quick to remind that person of Jesus' grace to them and their love, his love toward them, and to remind them of the rest that's found in him. Looking to him and turning away from whatever sin or temptation may be present. I also think that as we continue to pursue, as we have been doing these last couple of years, really intentionally cultivating a culture of being and making disciples together, pursuing, making it more and more the norm, that it's not a problem if you don't have it all figured out, if you don't have all the answers in the Bible study discussion, and that it's actually the expectation that everybody here has got some sort of a shady past and a shaky present, but a steadfast hope and future, that our place, our church, will be a place that is transformed into a place where the grace of Christ is magnified. So friends, May we not come away from this passage with a palpable sense of condemnation, but a palpable sense of relief, a sense of the grace of Jesus. May we not come away from this passage missing the fact that this means that he's for us. He loves us. He's gracious to us. Friends, I think you'll find that the deeper you go into the grace of Jesus, the more you'll be transformed into his likeness because the more clearly you see him the more you will be like him and so instead of coming away from matthew 10 and 11 with guilt and shame and burden and any kind of sense of condemnation please my friends come away with relief and with rest because of the gentle grace of christ let's pray oh lord yes please let this be the case in our hearts Use your word to transform us into people who are grace-amazed people. People who 
are astonished at what you have called us to and done for us, and then let that transform us in the way we go on mission, in the way that we treat one another, and in the way that we think about our relationship with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to invite us to take a few minutes to pray quietly, as we often do. But before that, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that next in our order of worship is our time at the Lord's table during communion. And so what I'd like to do in our time of quiet prayer that we usually do right after the sermon is sort of fold that into a time of quiet preparation, if you will, of our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Because the Apostle Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 11 that there is the possibility of coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And in the context, he's talking about our relationship in particular with one another. And if there is something in our lives, whether it be with one another or even in our relationship to God, some sort of issue that would make us coming to the table a disingenuous thing. And so, while I want to be careful to say that it's not, that if you don't have it all perfect, you better not take from the table, because then nobody's taking communion today. But if there is something between you and a brother in particular, or a a willfully unrepentant thing in your heart that you need to deal with, then do that in this time of preparation for the table. Whether it's forgiving someone, or whether it's committing to going and talking to someone, or whether it's repenting of something in your own heart to the Lord, and then just run to Jesus in this very same way that we've been speaking of today as we take these symbols of the body and blood of our Lord together during communion. So we're going to take a few minutes to pray, then uh, I'll say amen, and then the uh, musicians will come, and the elements will begin to be passed, and we'll enjoy the Lord's table together. So let's take a few moments in quiet prayer.